Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of What That Means, Cryptographic Services. We have with us today Eduardo Cabré, who's a principal engineer with the Intel Product Assurance and Security Division. He's the architect of Intel's Key Generation Facility, or IKGF, which delivers billions of keys and certificates a year for both Intel and also the broader industry. Eduardo is a recognized expert in high-volume cryptographic key generation, key provisioning, and hardware root-of-trust PKIs. We'll get into some of those details as we go forward. As an architect, he develops the software and security architecture of cryptographic systems, and he leverages his expertise in cryptographic primitives, technical and operational controls, network security, high availability and disaster recovery needed to assure key generation and provisioning life cycles. Eduardo also provides technical leadership externally outside of Intel, such as driving transparent supply chain contributions within the Trusted Computing Group Standards Organization. Welcome to the show, Eduardo. Hi, Camille. Thank you very much uh, and uh, very glad to be here. I'm hoping that we can start off, we, we ran through a whole bunch of different terms, even in the introduction, like keys um, and root of trust. I'm wondering if you can start by just defining what are cryptographic services in just under three minutes? Absolutely. So cryptographic services are, are a very important part of securing data in computing devices. Cryptographic services typically consist of the generation of cryptographic keys that are embedded into silicon devices, generating digital certificates for those keys, and also providing key management and revocation capabilities. And in addition, though, one of the most important aspects of these kinds of services is not only you have to do those things, but you have to deliver them under very strict technical, physical, and operational controls so that very high levels of trust can be achieved. Users expect computing devices to protect their data against uh, unauthorized access, and to do so, uh, cryptography is a very critical tool. Some examples of the security capabilities that make heavy use of cryptography, as you know, are you know, whole disk encryption, biometric authentication, secure boot, and device identity and attestation. The last two are very important because they've become very fundamental features of cloud computing. Uh, device identity allows a, a user to authenticate to a computing device remotely prior to utilizing that device, uh, while device attestation provides a mechanism for the user to confirm that the state of the computing device, its firmware, and the software is trustworthy. So a very typical use case of device identity and attestation is a customer wanting to execute a safety-critical workload in the cloud using identity and attestation to verify the uh, compute instance prior to executing that sensitive workload. So whereas we might have been familiar with attestation of identity of a person, like I want to make sure this is actually Eduardo, who's, you know, the person on the other end <laughs> accessing the system and the, and the data and the information, you're saying we can use 
cryptography or cryptographic services to attest to the identity of the device itself, like the computer or the server, as well as the state the device is in, in terms of you know, whether it's got the, the latest firmware image we expect it to have or whether something else might have been substituted in without us knowing it. Yeah, that is exactly right. So let, let's dive a little deeper. The first thing I'm wondering is, is there a use case where somebody might want to verify the identity and state of a system like every single time they're accessing it? Or is this like a once and done kind of a use case where you're just going to check when you receive a system from manufacturing that it's in fact what you ordered? Yeah, that's a very good question. As a matter of fact, um, both use cases are valid. There is a supply chain use case where you could use these technologies when you re- receive the a device physically to, you know, into your, let's say, your enterprise environment or to your deployed environment, you can utilize attestation to make sure that that device has not been compromised in transit, right, throughout the supply chain. Uh, devices changes hands a number of times prior to being deployed. And so, so certainly attestation can be utilized to confirm that the device that you purchased is the device that you received. But in addition to that, attestation can really be executed at any point in time you want. Uh, there are mechanisms to do that through online services that, for example, you can call an API, you can send the um, uh, measurements of the system, and then the API verifies those measurements and sends you a signal back to you saying, yep, those are the measurements, you know, the state of, of the system that we expected to have. So I want to back up a little bit and just make sure I understand what keys are. When you say cryptographic keys or Intel's key generation facility, what what exactly is a key and how are you generating it? Where are you keeping it? Sure. So there are two types of cryptography, symmetric cryptography and asymmetric cryptography. Symmetric cryptography deals with the process of encrypting data, typically in very large volumes, right? Uh, and it is symmetric because you utilize the same key to encrypt and to decrypt, okay? And so those keys, as I mentioned, are typically generated in a very large data center utilizing hardware security modules, which are basically specialized hardware that create these these random numbers. This is basically what these cryptographic keys are, very large random numbers. Those keys are there uh, provisioned onto the device during the manufacturing flow. There is also the concept of an asymmetric key where you provide a private portion in a public portion. The private portion, which is the secret, is embedded in the device during the manufacturing process, but the public portion is typically signed and put into a digital certificate, which is then distributed to all the parties that want to do the authentication and attestation against that device. And so those are the two primary cryptographic uh, methods. So what would be an example, uh, like if you're an IT organization, which kind of cryptography are you using, symmetric or asymmetric? You would use both. You would use symmetric, for example, when you want to store sensitive data in a database, okay? So you have an enterprise environment, you want to have your uh, corporate data, your top secret data stored in a protected fashion, you will use symmetric cryptography uh, for that. In scenarios where you want to, let's say, uh, authenticate to a remote system using perhaps TLS or some other authentication protocol, 
uh, asymmetric encryption is used. You said one's called public and one's called private key? Yeah, correct. And that's specifically public key cryptography, where the cryptographic key is split into two values, a value that is, is private that, that you hold, the entity hold, and another value that is public that the verifying party holds. And so the way that it works is when you send me a message, you can sign that message with your private key. Once I receive that message, I can verify the signature on that message utilizing your public key. And because I know this public key is yours, I can confirm that this message, in fact, came from you. So I know that, you know, cryptocurrency, we could list Bitcoin um, as an example of a cryptocurrency, uses cryptography. <laughs> and I know that cryptography has a lot of use cases that are much broader than that as well. Um, what kind of cryptography does cryptocurrency use? Uh, cryptocurrency uses asymmetric cryptography. When you say that you have a Bitcoin wallet, okay, really what you have is the private portion of that asymmetric key. So what you have is a private key store, let's say in your system or in your, you know, in an app, in your phone or whatever. And so what happens is when you do a Bitcoin transaction, effectively all you're doing is you're signing a token that says, I am transferring five Bitcoin to Camille, okay? I then sign that message with my private key and then I embed that message into the blockchain. And um, that's effectively the mechanism to confirm that in fact that transaction happened. Otherwise there's really no other way to tell that I was the person that initiated that transaction. So what other kinds of use cases are there today besides cryptocurrency for this type of key? Well, uh, as, as we were talking before, attestation is a, a very, a very big use case. And so um, like in the cryptocurrency scenario in attestation, you embed a private key into, let's say, the platform or, or device, right? And you have the public key, which you trust because it has a digital certificate associated with it. When you interrogate the device and you ask the device, hey, device, I want to know whether your state is trustworthy. What the device is going to do is that the device is going to make a, basically calculate a hash of the firmware that is running, okay? It's going to then sign it with this private key and send that information to me, the hash and the signature. When I receive that, what I do is that I verify the signature uh, so I can, number one, confirm that that message came from you. And in addition, I'll compare that hash to a database of trusted hash values, okay? So if you send me uh, a hash of your firmware, I can then compare that hash against the database that says, oh, yeah, that is the version of the firmware that um, you should be running at this moment in time. Okay. So who is generating the public key if I'm generating my private key? So the entity that produces the key produces both, the private and the public. So typically the way that it works in, let's say, in, in the embedded devices, you have a, a data center, right, or a facility where you generate these key pairs, public and private key pairs, in very high volume. You take the private key, you embed it into the device during some manufacturing process, typically fusing them into uh, a secure set of fuses in, in silicon directly. And uh, you keep the public key. You sign it and you publish it. Since it is public, anybody should actually have access to it. 
So the private key, now you just said it can be put into the silicon itself. Are, are they ever just stored in software or are they always in the silicon? Well, um, they could be stored in, in software or some other mechanism, although it's not very common. Uh, it, certainly, the, the private key is the, the most sensitive part of the key, and so you want to protect it as best you can. If that key leaks, then whoever obtains access to the key can impersonate that device. So you don't want that. And so, uh, you know, the generation of the keys is, is important and as important as where you store that key and how you protect it once the key is on the part itself. So what kind of a place to store is secure? There is a region of gates inside the device called secure fuses where keys are placed. And so there is then a specialized controller, uh, the fuse controller, basically the only uh, piece of the of circuitry that has access to those fuses. And that circuitry protects access to the fuses and then grants access to only the parts of the silicon that need it, right? The most trusted parts of the silicon, like a hardware trust, for example, like a TPM or a security manageability engine, for example. When you talk about keys and biometric keys, what is that? Are, are you talking about using like fingerprint as a stand-in for a key or are you issuing a key around the fingerprint? I don't understand how those two things intersect. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, primarily, the use of cryptography there has to do with protecting the biometric measure, okay? So let's say when you um, program your laptop for the very first time with your fingerprint, right? Or your iris scan or whatever biometric. Uh, what the system is doing is obtaining a picture of your fingerprint, okay? And then typically just hashing that information uh, into a secure hash value, which is a very long number, you know, perhaps in the hundreds of, of, of bytes. That information is then encrypted with a cryptographic key and store locally into your device, okay? So that's where encryption comes along. It comes, in, it comes into play when the fingerprint itself needs to be stored securely in your device. Okay, so the biometric factor <laughs> that I'm gonna use, whether it's my, my eyes, my face, my fingerprint, in order to assure that it remains private, <laughs> it's not going to like a cloud, it's actually being stored locally on my device. And my device is saying, okay, I took the scan, the initial scan <laughs> I, and now I'm storing it down at the hardware level. And so every time, you know, you look at the screen or you put your finger on the pad, I, I'm checking it off against the hardware that's inside of me. I'm not running that anywhere outside on the internet. Is that accurate? Well, actually, it's, it's a good question because once you encrypt the, the biometric data, you could theoretically send it to some cloud service, right? As long as the key that is used to encrypt that data resides locally on your device, the encrypted data could live anywhere. But ultimately, you're correct. Uh, what's going to happen is when the biometric verification happens, the biometric data will be decrypted locally with the key that is just only known to your device, typically inside a TPM or a hardware root trust inside your, your device. TPM being trusted platform module. That's exactly right. So is one kind of these keys, the public or the private, going to be susceptible to quantum computers just quickly busting through the encryption on them? Which set is that going to be a problem for? 
So if you look at both asymmetric and symmetric encryption, in this symmetric encryption side, it is believed that quantum computers are, are not going to be able to substantially weaken symmetric encryption. So the data that you have stored in your machine or in your database that is using symmetric encryption to get that data, that data is probably going to remain secure. Quantum computers are very good, though, on, on the other hand, at breaking um, asymmetric cryptography. Okay, and so because asymmetric cryptography uses intractable mathematical problems to operate, to basically derive the keys, what quantum systems can do is break the public key and recover the private key from the public key. So because the public key is public, anybody has access to it, anybody that has access to the public key and a quantum computer (laughs) will be able to reverse engineer your private key. And that's bad news when that happens. <laughs> and so essentially, the way you described it before, where you have symmetric keys, it's like you're the owner of both sides of the key, that's um, the, the lock and the key, whereas the public, whereas the asymmetric, you're probably the owner of the private key and then the public key is available anywhere. Correct. So what kinds of things are going to break then? Any kind of data I would imagine I might store on the internet would be susceptible to quantum compute. Is that accurate? That that is accurate, right? Uh, so so basically, most network security protocols are based on uh, public key cryptography, and all of those will break effectively, right? So no more TLS, no more MCTP, right? All those protocols that utilize asymmetric cryptography for the underlying security will break. Okay, is there a plan in the industry for that? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Do we, do we the people, have a, have a plan? <laughs> <laughs> we do, we do. So what we can do, and we're already doing, uh, we have been doing for a few years now, is to extend the life of RSA and ECDSA by just making the keys longer. By making the key longer, you will require an even bigger quantum computer to be able to break them. Now, that method of extending the, the, the key length is going to work for some period of time, but eventually quantum computers are going to catch up, okay? Or the keys are going to get so long that it's going to be basically impractical to use them. On the other hand, though, what NIST is doing and, and the academic industry is doing and, and also corporate are doing is investing in developing quantum-resistant algorithms for asymmetric uh, cryptography. And so there are a number of them already uh, that have very good potential and that have been under development for many years. Uh, What uh, the government is now doing, NIST specifically, is they've started a competition. They started a few years ago in 2017 to find the replacement asymmetric encryption algorithms that would be quantum resistant. And they're in the process of doing that. And we hope to to have the results of that competition coming up here in the next year or two. And then then, then everything changes. NIST, just for those who aren't as familiar, National Institute of Standards. And technology. And technology. Okay. So this is for the United States. So are the other governments similar or parallel organizations to the to the U.S. National Institute of Standards? Are they doing the same thing in, in parallel or are they kind of working together? Is the world united on, on this? Well, the world is certainly united. Um, I don't know what uh, I'm. I'm sure Europe is doing something. I'm sure the you know Asian countries, particularly China, are doing something because uh, China has their own asymmetric uh, crypto systems. But certainly, if you look at the institutions that have submitted to the NIST competition, are they're, they're global. Uh, certainly, the whole world is uh, is now working towards finding quantum resistant algorithms and, and proving uh, proving so. 
What else should I be asking you about in cryptographic services? Are there new kinds of services emerging or are we more focused on this problem of quantum coming? Like what's kind of the leading edge issues or challenges or innovations in this space, cryptographic services? There's a couple of things that are going to be pretty challenging. I mean, certainly quantum computing is going to be one. Uh, something to mention around quantum computing as well is that um, when a new crypto system is is picked, the process for uh, transitioning from existing crypto systems to, to the new crypto systems are going to take a really long time, right? I mean, these things take a long, long time. Not only you have to have the standards drafted and then and then finalized, but then you actually have to go through the actual implementation, right? In firmware, in software, in hardware. So we expect that this transition is going to be, you know, at least a decade, if not more. So that's, you know, certainly a challenge. The other thing that is happening and it's happening in parallel is that uh, the, the computing industry is really focusing on embedding trust everywhere, right? So we talked about attestation and platform attestation, these kinds of things. Where what, what the computing industry is trying to do now is that they want to embed trust in every component in a platform. So you no longer just trust a platform. I want to be able to trust the embedded controller in the platform. I want to be able to trust the BMC in that platform. I want to be able to trust that TPM in the platform. And so what used to be a, a, a challenge of generating these, these cryptographic keys, typically just one per platform, now we're talking about having to generate dozens of keys, dozens of certificates, and then the complexity of doing that at very, very, very high volume is going to be a daunting task, to say the least, right? We're going to be going from hundreds of millions or billions of keys to dozens of billions of keys in the next uh, few years. That makes perfect sense to me. Because somebody trying to hack is going to look for the weakest link. So I don't care if your whole platform has a key. I want to make sure that the component within it or the subsystem within it that I think is the weakest link also is verified, right? That's exactly right. You know, and it's been an evolution, right? I mean, um, the concept of harbor root of trust was introduced, you know, decade ago, you know, decade and a half ago. And that solved that question of, am I talking to the right thing? I mean, I can't the thing prove that it is, you know, who says it is by some cryptographic mechanism. But now is, yeah, like you said, is, can I trust a specific component? And then the other thing is, there is a, a new concept of platform root of trust, where the platform internally has the ability to interrogate all of its components, obtain evidence that each one of its components is operating in a trustworthy way before the platform boots, right? And so that gives it even a higher level of trust for the end user. Are these use cases that you're talking about, hardware root of trust and uh, secure boot, are they being used across servers and clients or, or PCs? Or are there different use cases when you're talking about a computer versus a server? Yeah, uh, they are used pretty uniformly, I would say, conceptually. The mechanisms and the implementations are different, but you know, I, th I think conceptually, for example, Secure Boot is, is, is everywhere, right? And not only desktop and server, but you're starting to see it in IoT devices. You start to see in microcontrollers. You start to see in other computer products as well. And where are you seeing kind of the most innovation in this space in cryptographic services? Intel in particular is is very involved in the development of new protocols of communication, 
where before, again, you were concerned about protecting communications over the internet, or over an enterprise network, or over a local area network. Now you're concerned about protecting communication, again, within the platform itself, mm -hmm. right? So now you want to make sure that when the PCH communicates with the CPU inside a server, that communication is secure. Or when the BMC talks to an embedded controller, that communication is secure. So now we're spending a lot of time and, and effort innovating in taking the protocols that we have and shrinking them to work in this very, very constrained environment. And so fundamentally, would it be accurate to say that cryptography fundamentally interacts at the hardware level? Yeah, the cryptography is implemented at a very, very low level, hardware trust level. This is not happening in your CPU. This is really happening on pieces of silicon that are designed specifically to protect these keys, perform the cryptographic operations, and protect those cryptographic operations, right? And so they're dedicated hardware that, that is doing this. This is, for the most part, not occurring in, in directly in your, in your CPU chip, right? It's in a TPM, in a manageability engine, in a BMC, which are um, purposefully designed to, uh, to support cryptography. I think it's very interesting. It's kind of this interaction between this hardware layer and the software layer. Um, and I think typically I don't know that regular people, unlike you, who aren't focused at, <laughs> at this level are, you know, I don't really think of it that way so much as the, as the hardware layer interacting with the software layer for kind of not just even daily activities, but we're talking about like every time I'm signing into a device, this kind of thing is a potential breach and then potentially very securely protected if done correctly. It's interesting to me. I think that's really the only way to implement security the right way is to build these dedicated pieces of hardware that all they do is protect your data, right? And secure your data. Eduardo, thank you for joining the show today. I've learned a tremendous amount about cryptography and cryptographic services and their applications and what makes them secure. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom in this space. Thank you very much, Camille. And um, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been fun. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.